This is Classical Dark Arts. I'm Will Roselip. There comes a time in every classical fan's life when you're called to do something beyond the scope of musical fandom to justify why you love this music. Anybody who's been to shows knows the feeling. Anyone who's played an instrument or gotten a pickup group together or just gotten lost watching performances on YouTube has tried to convey after the fact what that experience is like. And it's hard. You can talk about the excitement of the crowd, the adrenaline rush, the visceral fist-pumping triumph, dilated pupils, goosebumps, all of it. But selling the goodness of the music is tough. The language fails us. Today, on Classical Dark Arts, we're taking up the challenge. You're going to hear eight bulletproof favorites, my favorites, battle-tested on headphones and stereos. And if these don't win the argument for you, then maybe nothing will. Listen close. What I'm bringing is certified premium-grade music. Your list is probably different, and that's cool. Just get your list ready. Classical fans, this is how we justify the obsession. If you want to skip ahead, you'll find these eight pieces at classicaldarkarts.com, which is the future home of the Classical Music Defense Fund. Sign up for our weekly mailer, which is read by conductors, musicians, and music nerds, all fighting the good fight, just like you. Okay, brace for impact. We start easy. Mad Men, Bones, 127 Hours. All three of these have used this next piece at some point. You've heard it maybe a thousand times, but maybe you didn't know the name, which is a problem generally for classical music, but let's talk about that later. This piece is pretty much textbook solo piano music. It's overplayed. But for our purposes, it's also perfect. It passes the one litmus test for any music. Put it on and people will shut up. When this gets played, you get that faraway look. You start pouring some scotch. You take a bunch of deep breaths, and you go text that girl you've been thinking about. Here we go. Chopin, Nocturne, in E-flat major. Go get your guy, go get your girl, put this on, because this is what it's all about. Something about that progression, the left hand dutifully moving along, that melody, just sweet sadness. Chopin struck a nerve when he conjured that melody. There's something really profound at work here, but don't worry, we won't overanalyze it. There's over a million hits on YouTube for this recording you're hearing right now. No information given on the artist. Kind of a shame. Chopin, Nocturne, and E-flat major. Our next piece is a tone poem written in 1896 by Richard Strauss, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. 
It's based on Friedrich Nietzsche's novel of the same name. Nietzsche, of course, being every 18-year-old boy's favorite philosopher. Strauss actually used the chapter titles from Nietzsche's novel for names of movements in this piece. So you'll get things like Of Joy and Passions, Song of the Night Wanderer, The Dance Song, to name three. The most popular part of this piece, by far, is its opening called Sunrise. That was featured in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, a.k.a. The Dawn of Man scene, Bunch of Apes, Mysterious Obelisk. I didn't know this until I started reading up on it, but Elvis used that opening as his walk-up music when he was performing in the 70s. Maybe more important, wrestler Ric Flair, the nature boy, the self-proclaimed dirtiest player in the game, used it as his ring entrance music. You talking to the Rolex wearing... Diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun, and I'm having a hard time holding these alligators down. Woo! Uh, there's only one. Oh, awesome. If Strauss is good enough for him, he's good enough for me too. But the piece is longer than its intro. Much longer, in fact, about a half hour in total. And there's some great stuff here. All you gotta do is wait like 30 seconds after that famous opening, and you get this. So that's a new, like, ridiculously sweet string theme. Later, you get another theme led by the strings, but this one's a little more souped up. And Strauss flips it again right here. And what you're about to hear are some very difficult runs, which is why players really have a love-hate thing going on with Strauss. His pieces are always on the goddamn audition list. For all the bluster and wildness throughout, the piece ends pretty quietly. There's still an edge there, like a clash of keys, some dissonance. He's really just screwing it in. Richard Strauss thus spoke Zarathustra, 1890. Of course, this wasn't the only programmatic work by Strauss. He wrote many more in that vein. Don Quixote... Don Juan, Don Zimmer, 
uh, Bishop Don, Magic Wand. I suggest you check them all out. The aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. That's a quote from composer Johann Sebastian Bach. It's a quote now that seems a little ironic, not because Kanye already proclaimed himself God, but because a lot of musicians and music geeks I know consider Bach to be the god of music, if not God himself. What we're listening to now is his double violin concerto, Yehudi Menuhin and David Oistrakh are the soloists. This double concerto was written sometime between 1717 and 1723. It's hard to pin down the exact date of divine creation. It's not a concerto in the sense that you get a huge improvised cadenza halfway through. There's not even a lot of pyrotechnics to speak of. The beauty of this piece is in the way Bach blends soloists, in this case, Menuhin and Oistrakh, with the violin section. There's a clear division between the solo lines, of course, but a lot of the time the violin section is just bolstering what the soloists are already doing. They're there for moral support. The middle movement you're hearing now is a step back, just luxuriant. He never strays too far from that churn that's so central to his game. Running 16th notes, even 30 seconds, the 300 horsepower engine. Maybe best of all, this whole double concerto clocks in under 20 minutes. A complete concerto, such as it is, in less time than it takes to watch an episode of Seinfeld without commercials. Bach is not always known for brevity, but in this case, he hit it and quit it. You're done before you know it. Watch your head spin from all that music. God-level flow. J.S. Bach, concerto for two violins. I recently came across a bunch of CDs I burned when I was a freshman in college. This is back when it was still novel to make CDs for yourself without having to shell out 20 bucks in the store. I still can't believe they got that much money for a CD. I'm sure the profits were going first to the execs, then the mid-level label minions and flunkies, and then if there's anything left over, then maybe the artist got a slice. Maybe. Anyway, those were heady times. It was like a land grab for music. Napster was just getting started. With a fast web connection, you could download gigs of music off a torrent, which was definitely, without question, 100% illegal. Whoops. This batch of CDs that I just found was stuff like Rage Against the Machine, Beastie Boys, Angsty, Loud. But there's also some John Coltrane albums, which are loud in their own way. And maybe, loudest of all, Leonard Bernstein, New York Phil, Shostakovich 5.
Back then, I'd bump Shostakovich on headphones, walking around campus. More often than not, it was the Fifth Symphony's last movement. It was actually a great way to wake up. It's like a bunch of Three Stooges slaps. If you're into playing pranks on people, this movement is a great way to wake somebody up. But that would be mean, right? Shostakovich is a complicated composer because he lived in uncertain times. There was war and famine in Russia. He was sometimes embraced by the state. Sometimes he was blacklisted. He was popular, prolific, and constantly feared for his life. The Fifth Symphony's finale is the perfect encapsulation of that conflict. After the boisterous start, what we just heard, then you get this. A completely different feel from the opener. But all that is just a prelude to a big breakthrough. Triumph. Don't call him an optimist, but Shostakovich picks his spots. Dear sweet lord, that's a finale to Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, which is the fourth piece on our Super 8 list. This is Classical Dark Arts. Now a word from our sponsors. Classical Dark Arts is brought to you by the Tesla Diesel Dually Truck. The new Tesla Diesel has dual exhaust, split-fold back seats, 28,000-pound tow capacity, 800 foot-pounds of diesel torque, My God, with gas so cheap right now, you would be a toothless moron not to make the switch back to gasoline. The Tesla diesel dually truck boasts a best-in-class rating of 20 kilograms of CO2 per gallon of diesel gas burned. Tesla Motors, more than just electric cars. And we're also brought to you by the Pocket Candy Cane Company. This past holiday season saw a huge increase in candy cane sales. And folks, we have reason to believe that number is only going to grow as the year goes on. Pocket candy canes come in a refreshing peppermint stick. It's bent at the top, so you can conveniently hang it from your pocket as you go about your day. Be the first of your friends to jump on this hot new trend. It won't be long before our most trusted celebrities are sporting their own, quote, 
PCC, head to pocketcandycane.tumblr.com. Just enter code word classical on the home screen. That's pocketcandycane.tumblr.com, code word classical. Now back to the show. If you read my weekly mailer, and you can, just go to classicaldarkarts.com, click on the link and sign up for it. You also get a copy of my book if you do that. It's classicaldarkarts.com. Anyway, if you read the CDA mailer, you know my favorite composer is Beethoven. By a long f- shot. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending was a bit of the old Ludwig van. It wasn't always that way. As a kid, I started learning one of his cello sonatas. I was just like... Uh, uh, I'm good. It was too much something. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't ready for it. But little by little, from those VSOP slow movements to the flashy overtures, I converted. Now, it's Beethoven over everything. Imitators under all. You want to do a symphony cycle? I'm going to grab some Red Bulls, some contact solution, and a sleeping bag, because I am in. You want to read some string quartets? I'll tackle the cello part, just... After a few yoga stretches, want to go see The Creatures of Prometheus? Never actually seen that one, so yeah, why not? If Bach is the god of classical music, then Beethoven is the son of man. I don't really know what piece to choose here. You could make a case for the Fifth Symphony right now, and I wouldn't disagree. Ditto, Eroica, Egmont Overture. If you said the Ninth Symphony, arguably his greatest, I couldn't mount a defense against you. But... Maybe we can try steering in the direction of the ninth without going straight to the mother of all pieces. Enter Beethoven's Choral Fantasy, a work that bears a passing resemblance to the ninth, but it gets it done in 20 minutes. You get the same silken melodies, the same full-on vocal excursion. Choral Fantasy gives you piano, orchestra, chorus, everything. It's like an all-inclusive vacation package. Here's how it starts. different from the ninth. We're talking solo keyboard all the way. Then there is this. Where else have you heard this? But you came for that killer, for that crashing Beethoven sound. All right. All 
Ludwig von Beethoven Choral Fantasy, written in 1808. Our next piece is Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, a piece written in 1910. Composer Ralph von Williams took a melody from 1567, written by Thomas Tallis, and he flipped it. To give you a sense, here's the original tune, which is called Why Fumth in Fight. The Englishman took that small sample from his record collection and he wrote a remix EP around it. DJ Ralph Vaughn Williams struck gold. This is a piece that has to be played in a church. It needs the space and the majesty of a towering cathedral. It needs a big, quiet crowd. You've heard this piece before if you saw Master and Commander, that Russell Crowe movie. It's also going to be included on the soundtrack to the new Fifty Shades of Grey movie. Yeah, so there's that. Vaughn Williams wrote it for full-string orchestras, you can probably tell, but there are competing factions within the orchestral sections battling it out. He's also got breakout solos like this black velvet viola line. Vaughn Williams was gunning for a sound that was like an organ. Again, why this piece should be played in a cathedral. I think he got it right. Listen to this last part and tell me that doesn't sound like hundreds of pipes wrapped around a church. Ralph Vaughn Williams' Fantasia on a Theme of Thomas Tallis, 1910. This next one is kind of a rare creature in live performance. I've only heard it played as an encore at recitals. You know, after there's been like an hour of music, the audience is a little antsy, the final notes have been played, and everybody just jumps up for a standing O. But really, they just wanted to stretch their legs and get some air, ASAP. But then the applause dies down, the musicians stay on stage, and then there's this.
That's right, Ace. You just got lucky. It's a flashy finish. You're listening to a Passacaglia written by George Friedrich Handel, originally for harpsichord and transcribed for string duo by Johann Halverson. It's the classic theme and variations, if that means anything to you. You'd think people would pick something easier to finish with, but always leave them wanting more, I guess. So if you heard this, would you go home happy? I would say without a doubt. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Wait, wait a minute. Let's run that back. Oof. That is some fire. G minor Passacaglia by Handel, arranged for strings by Johann Halverson. To hear any of this music, go to classicaldarkarts.com, fish around in there and find my book, sign up for the CDA mailer and get the book as part of the deal. Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Final entry occupies a very special place for me. It is a special piece. This is a German Requiem by Johannes Brahms. I'm not sure why this piece doesn't get love like the Mozart and Verdi Requiems. Brahms's piece, though, is a secular Requiem. In other words, it's not designed for a big mass or a service. It stands on its own, just a stone's throw from the church doors. All I'm saying is, when I die, I want a full orchestra, chorus, and two solo singers performing this on my way out. Just thinking out loud here, but it might be fitting music for a king or queen's coronation. Um, I'm not really sure why the Germans don't make it their national anthem. I mean, imagine the German soccer team winning the World Cup, hearing this at the end of the final match. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, there's a standout movement here, the second movement of a German Requiem, which is Brahms in beast mode. second movement, it goes in a completely different direction, but still so powerful. 
Later in the piece, Brahms just takes the gloves off. I'm speechless. I, this is as good as it gets. Holy f***ing sh! Completed in 1868, Johannes Brahms, a German requiem, spent some time admiring that prize horse. That is going to do it for us to hear more of this music, and I'm hoping you'll want to hear a lot more. Head to the website, classicaldarkarts.com. And I want to ask a favor of you, too. This podcast originates on SoundCloud. That's where I upload it to. From there, via the magic of the internet, it gets sucked up and distributed by Stitcher, PRX, iTunes, a bunch of other platforms. What I'd ask you to do is, if you like this podcast, write a review. Give us a star rating on iTunes, one through five stars. That way, people can see that we've been thoroughly vetted by folks such as yourself. We'll be back at you in a few weeks. In the meantime, you can catch me on Twitter, at Will Roselip. See you next time.